For my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. O God, as we come now to the preaching of your word, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our eyes, that you would show us things that we need to change in our lives to be better servants of yours, to honor Christ better in this life, to glorify you more and more. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one night, late in the evening, a couple of weeks ago, I ran upstairs. I didn't have the light on. I ran upstairs, got to the top of my stairs, ran around the corner and whammo. I hit a chair that Tammy had taken from her office and put out into the hallway. It was hard, it was heavy, and it hurt my knee a lot. And I limped around for a little while. And I didn't say any bad words. I didn't yell at my wife for leaving the chair there. But you could say, well, why didn't you turn the light on, dummy? That's why we have lights in our house, not to run around in the dark and run into things, but so that it can illuminate our way. We need the light. We can just flick on a switch and we've got light. At all hours, day or night, it doesn't matter. We can illuminate stadiums with lights. We can do all kinds of things with lights, with this artificial lighting that we have. And it is a great blessing to be able to turn on a light switch and have lights. Many people in history have not had that blessing that we have. They've had candles, they've had torch lights, they've had campfires and other things, but they have not had the ability to just turn on a light switch. And there we go. We've got light. We can see. We're not running into things in the dark. Now, light can also, or light uh, can also be very comforting for us. Children often want a night light to have on so that they have comfort. If they wake up in the night, they can see. And I know often when I go away and I'm sleeping in a strange place or a hotel, I have a small light on so that when I get up in the night, if I have to, then I can see my way. I'm not going to run into things and injure my knee again. So we use these things and they're a great blessing to us. And thus far in the book, of Philippians as we've been looking through here I just want to back up and just give a bit of context we won't recap the whole book but just backing up to last time as we saw Jesus the exalted Christ in in humiliation he was condemned he was obedient to the death and then he was exalted his exaltation and we see Paul writing that he's been given the name above every name that at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess his lordship, that he is truly the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. And in the last passage that we looked at, Paul exhorted them to work out their salvation. Now, what does that mean? It means simply this, that we are to work out of us what God has already worked in us. We're not to work for our salvation, we work out 
our salvation. That's a very important distinction that we make. And we are to do so with fear and with trembling, with reverence and with awe. We want to live before the Lord, knowing that we're going to have God's help all along the way, that God is never going to ask anything of us, that he does not also with that request give us the grace and the ability and the gifts to fulfill that request. He is going to be with us continually and continually right till the end, that God has prepared good works for each one of us. If we're believers, Ephesians 2.10 tells us he's prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them, and he's going to help us to walk in them. But while we are working out our salvation, while we are living in this world, what attitudes should we have? What actions should we take? Why should we even bother I mean, we're already saved by grace. Why do we need to work out our salvation? It's tough to be a Christian in our age. Well, Paul doesn't, doesn't leave us long to wonder why. He tells us. He tells us why in the next passage. He gives us the attitudes we should have and the action we should take. Why should we live this way? Because the world is watching. People are watching us. The world is watching. We looked at a bit of that in chapter 1. But people are watching our lives to see if our words match our actions. To see if there's inconsistencies. And so we are being watched. And so the right attitude that the Apostle Paul gives to us is found in verse 14 and the start of verse 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Are you already convicted? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. That is the what and the why that he gives us right there. What we are to do, what the right attitude is, and why we are to do it. Grumbling. You know what it means to grumble or complain. Some of us have had a lot of practice with that over the years. Grumbling. Murmuring, that's what this means, a grumbling. It's like if you ask uh, your child or something, or maybe you're a young person here and your dad asks you to take out the garbage or clean your room or clean up the dishes after, after supper, and you start muttering to yourself, murmuring, those kind of things. That is the complaining that he's talking about here. Murmuring and complaining, and that's the first word that we see here. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Disputing is being argumentative. It's closely linked, and I think grumblers are often argumentative people as well. They kind of go hand in hand together. Disputing, it's when you take things from being under your breath, that murmuring and complaining, to being very obvious about it and confronting people about it, being argumentative, disputing. And we see that taking place a lot in the nation of Israel, don't we? We see that in the book of Exodus. And think about Exodus 15 and 16, where, where the children of Israel, boy, just three days after they've been delivered out of exile, they've crossed miraculously through the Red Sea, they're now in the wilderness, and the murmuring starts, the complaining starts. And ultimately, as, as Moses and Aaron remind them, that murmuring and complaining is against God. We need to realize that, that our murmuring is against God. But in this passage of chapter 15 and 16, um, we see Moses and Aaron talking to the Israelites. And in verse 7 of chapter 16 of Exodus, we see, and in the morning, this is Moses and Aaron talking to them, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. 
heard grumbling against him. That's where it's going. Who are we that you should grumble against us? He has heard your grumbling against him. You are not grumbling against us. You are grumbling against the Lord. Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. We see this taking place. That's just a quick summary of a number of different verses all sandwiched in there together. But we see this murmuring take place, this complaining take place in these people that have just been brought out of slavery. They're the children of God, the Israelites, the nation of God, marked out specially by God, God's covenant people, all of these different blessings, and now they are murmuring, they're complaining, they don't like their leadership, they don't like the water, they don't like the food, none of it. And just as we're pointing our fingers at them, we have to remember that when you point one finger at someone else, you've got some pointed back at yourself. And we can be convicted as good Bible readers that we are, where we're not just reading the Bible for information, but transformation. We want to apply it to ourselves. And we can see a lot of ourselves sometimes in the nation of Israel, in the complaining and the murmuring. And ultimately, that complaining is against God. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. So that's why we should not complain and grumble and murmur because we are to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we are perfect people? No, not at all. It simply means this, that in the way that we live, in our interactions with the world, that people can't point a finger at us continually for the inconsistencies in our lives. It's a continuous pattern of living where we are inconsistent with the ways of God, that we're not living up to the things that we would profess. So we won't be blameless and innocent without blemish before the world if we talk like the world, if we walk like the world, if we're engaged in the same behaviors as the world. We won't be without blame in the world. They will have reason and cause to to bring up these things against us. We have to be careful that we do not profess Christ with our lips and then deny him with our life. We've got to be very careful about that inconsistency because the world is watching. And how attractive to the world is somebody who's grumbling and complaining all the time? It's not attractive to anyone, is it? Nobody wants to be around grumblers and complainers. And when we live that way before the world we are causing dispersions to come upon, upon the reputation of God. Because ultimately, all of our complaining and murmuring lands at his door. That we don't like certain things that are going on in our lives. We become discontented, and all that murmuring is against God. And that is bad advertising for the kingdom of God. You'll remember that we talked about back in chapter 1 and verse 27, that great verse there, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now that means a lot. But one thing that it does mean that we said at that time was it means that we want to represent the best of the kingdom of God. Represent the best. Now when we're complaining and murmuring, that doesn't represent the best at all. That's bad advertising for the kingdom of God. And so we've got to be careful in that respect that that we have a bad attitude that's bad advertising and we don't want to be doing that. Just like the ex, in Exodus 15 and 16 with the Israelites, our grumbling is primarily against God. And so we've got to be very careful about this murmuring and complaining. We don't want to be doing that. So we do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless 
and innocent, that you don't give cause to cast dispersions upon the reputation of God, that no one can accuse you of anything consistently going on in your life that is inconsistent with what we might say or believe as Christians. So do all things without grumbling and disputing. And then then the next thing that we see noted in our text following that, there needs to be a contrast between us and the world around us. There needs to be a marked difference in the way that we live. And Paul describes the condition of our world in the middle of verse 15. He says that we are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, I don't think any of us need to be convinced of this in the day and age in which we are living presently. But it was the same in Paul's day. It was crooked and twisted in Paul's generation as well. And that word crooked is the same word that we get the word scoliosis from. It's a medical condition of a, of a spine that is crooked and it can't bear the weight properly of the body it's trying to support. This crookedness of the spine. And so by using the word, Paul is saying that this world that we live in is morally bent. It's crooked. And it can't support all the things that it says, that it believes, that it professes. It can't support them in the way that they are living. And then the second word there we see is twisted, or perhaps your version says perverse. Twisted or perverse. And that's sort of the same thing, but it's a little bit different. And it means to contort or to turn. This twistedness. We live in a twisted, morally contorted world that is around us. It's perverse. We're in a culture where evil is called good and good is called evil. All of these things that we see going on in our culture that we could point as examples to where we see this perversity taking place, this twistedness that is occurring. And even the Lord Jesus said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? And so as Christians, we need to stand out from these perversities, from this crookedness, from this twistedness that is going on around us. And we need to honestly look at the world in which we are living in, in order to stand out. The world is getting more bent. The world is getting more and more twisted all of the time, more and more perverse, very obviously, very much in our faces. And it gets darker and darker all the time. That is the reality of the world in which we are living in. It's crooked, it's twisted, and yet Paul tells us our role in this world. And it's a high, high calling. We see at the end of verse 15, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now that I know, I know that the time period in which we are living in compared to church history, compared to a lot of world history, is not as dark as it's ever been. There have been times of economic, even in my lifetime, there's been times of economic depression that had have occurred, particularly back in the early 80s with super high interest rates. Things were much more difficult economically then than today. But I don't think there's ever been a time in my lifetime where things were as morally bankrupt as they are today. And we see the acceleration of it over the past two, five, ten years. Things are really, really picking up steam in the world in which we live. It is crooked, it is perverse, and amongst that, we are to shine as lights in the world. The world is bent, it is dark, it's twisted, it's contorted, it's all of these things that the Apostle Paul is describing for us here, and that means one thing. That our 
lives have never had an opportunity to shine as brightly as they can today. Why would I say that? Well, if you enjoy stargazing or looking at the planets or whatever it is, you don't stand in the city where we've got all this light. You want to go out into the darkness to be able to see those things better. You can see in the darkness, you can contrast in the darkness, the sun, the moon, and the stars, all these different things much more easily when we look at them in the darkness. And that is our calling. We live in a world of darkness and it is a time in history where we've never been able to shine brighter in that contrast. When we are walking in ways that please and honor the Lord, when we are walking in a manner that worthy of the gospel, we are going to shine brighter than the culture around us. That's an important thing for us to remember when we look at this dark, sinister world around us that we've never had an opportunity to shine more brightly than right now, pointing the way for other people. Amongst all that is crooked and all that is twisted, we live our lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse, twisted generation. We haven't shut away the world. We haven't escaped the world as much as I would like to move off the grid and move to the Yukon and and create my own uh, electricity and all these different things. We don't do that. Most of us don't. Why don't we do that? Because we're not going to do any lost souls any good by doing that. We want to shine brightly amongst a crooked and twisted generation. That's why Jesus said, so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Light has to be seen to do any good. And we're not to hide ourselves away. We are to be out there in contrast, boldly, brightly shining for the Lord. But Paul is not done with us. He goes on to say that while we are shining in the world, we're also to be engaging with the world. We see that in verse 16a holding fast to the word of life. So Paul moves from our attitude, not to be grumbling or disputing to our actions, that we are to be shining and holding fast the word of life. Now, when you think of those words holding fast, you think of gripping tightly. I can pick up this cup and grip it very tightly. And that is one um, way that this could be translated. But maybe you have a, a version that says holding forth holding forth the word of life. And I think as we apply this and we look at it in our own lives, that both ways interpretively are sound and both ways are biblical to apply. We can apply it in both ways. Not just holding it fast, gripping it tightly, knowing the gospel, but holding it forth, sharing the gospel. Those are two different applications, two different ways that we could look at it. Not just knowing it, holding it fast, holding on to it, gripping it tightly for ourselves, leaning upon it, gaining encouragement from these words of truth, but sharing it, holding it forth, holding it out. We need to hold it forth and share the words of life. At some point, no longer being silent is the best route to go. We actually have to use words to communicate the gospel. We actually need to tell people how we got out of darkness, came into the light, and how they can too. We need to show them the way. As Romans 10.14, Paul says, How can they believe in one whom whom they have not heard? 
And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? So we have to have the right attitude and we have to take the right actions. We shine, we hold fast, we hold forth the word of life. Now just, we need to just uh, quickly recap uh, verses 16, 17, and 18, and then we're going to go back and have some other words of application. But the last half of verse 16, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That's a recurring theme that we see in the writings of the Apostle Paul. He did not want to run. He didn't want to work and labor for nothing. He wanted to run for one who would win the prize, as we see in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. In Paul's labor of love toward the Lord and towards his people, he didn't do anything halfway. He was never half-hearted in his service. He was all in, in his service. He was not lukewarm. And we see that being expressed further in verses 17 and verses 18. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, what does that mean? Well, the picture would be very familiar to the church of Philippi, but not so familiar to us. And the idea here of a drink offering being poured out as a drink offering is that they would have sacrifices on the altar and then they would take a cup or a glass or some kind of a vessel, usually filled with wine, and they would pour that over the sacrifice that was already made. They would pour it over the sacrifice. And the idea there, the symbolism there, was being all in, that we're not withholding anything from the Lord, that we are all in in our service towards the Lord. And that is the idea that Paul expresses. And he views his life that way, that though he's in jail, he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. But regardless, he's going to live for Christ either way and gain more of Christ if he should die. But he says that I'm pouring my whole life out even if I'm to die, even especially if I'm going to die. And he says as much in Second Timothy, the last book that he, that he was to write for us, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure, that is my death, is at hand. That is what the, the apostle is expressing here, this idea of being all in and totally committed. And he, he looks to us and requires that of us in Romans 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is the idea that the apostle is conveying here. That was Paul. He was pouring his life out for the church at Philippi. And that is the way he wants us to live as well, being all in, being all in, in our relationship with the Lord, in our sacrifices for him, and in our sacrifice for one another as the church of God. Now, how do we apply this? How do we apply this? Just a couple of thoughts that came to my mind as I was reading this. And one of it, talking about light at the beginning and finding our way through the darkness. You think about a flashlight. Now, what kid doesn't like to play with flashlights? Flashlights are an awesome little thing in the, in the hands of a child, isn't it? They just love to play with a flashlight. And often we'll say to a kid, well, don't shine it in your eyes. Because they will turn it and look at it. And, oh, isn't this neat? And the They can damage their eyes. It's not comfortable. It hurts. And it's not comfortable if they shine it in our eyes. So we we warn them about that kind of thing. 
And that is one thing that we see about a flashlight or light in general. It reveals what the darkness tries to hide, what the darkness is hiding. Now, my wife Tammy's not with me this morning, so I can say this. My living room window at home is filthy, and I'm going to clean it tomorrow. And the reason why I know that it's filthy filthy is because when the sunlight hits it, I see all of the filth inside and outside on that window. It looks great in the dark. It looks great when the sun is not shining on it. But when the sun is hitting it, I see all of those impurities, all those things. And sometimes even on a window, you think it's clean and then the sunlight hits it and you see all those areas that you missed or you didn't do a great job at them. And also that sunlight shining through into our homes, we see all those impurities that are in the air. They're all lit up. With the darkness was hiding, all of a sudden, the light is exposing. Light reveals all of those dirt, all that dirt and impurity that's going on there. The bright light reveals what the darkness is hiding. And when we share the truth, which is revealing, when we shine that light on people's lives, on sin issues in their lives, what do they do? Well, they can repent, they can be convicted or repent, but often they flee. They flee, and Jesus said as much. This is the verdict, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Some people will flee, but not all will. Some people don't come to church because they don't want that conviction that work of the Holy Spirit being active in their lives. So they stay away. They want to continue in their, uh, in their sin. They love their sin more than righteousness and want to continue in that path of sin. So our light, our flashlight can be used to reveal. It reveals things that were once in darkness and we can shine that light in people's lives. But I think that there's a better way to go. That there is a time to shine that light in, on people's sin issues in their lives. Yes, there is. But I think another route that we can go, light reveals, and the second lesson we learn is that light leads. We can use that same light, that flashlight, to lead the way out of darkness. You go camping, and you're out at night on a trail, and you've got that flashlight in your hand, and you lead the way. Maybe there's other people following, and they can see that light too, and you're leading them out of the darkness. And that is another purpose that we have is shining as lights in this world is to lead people out of the darkness that they are in. And we lead them to, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't lead them into more darkness. We lead them to the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our light doesn't just expose the darkness. It's really helpful when it leads or directs somebody out of the darkness and into relationship with the Lord Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. It's one of those great I am passages. I am the light of the world. That's what he said about himself. I am the light of the world. But he also said in the next chapter, that as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he said in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount that was read for us earlier, you are the light of the world. So he's gone now. He leaves us as lights in the world and we are to shine brightly in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You are lights in the world. How do we reflect his light? Well, we've got to get close to the light. 
We've got to remain close to the light. We've got to abide in him. We need to get close to Jesus, to grow in him, to fellowship with him, to be in proximity to him so that we gain that light and that strength that we can then reflect that to other people. There was a visitor who came to a very remote lighthouse, and lighthouses are always remote by definition, right? They're in locations where people are in danger on the sea. There's a lighthouse there. And this man came to this lighthouse, and he said, how can you stand to live here? It's barren out here. It's ugly out here. It's terrible out here. Don't you fear even for your own safety? And the lighthouse keeper replied to him, no, I'm not afraid. I never think of myself out here. What do you mean you don't think of yourself? And the lighthouse keeper replied, I am perfectly safe and secure. My only concern is to make sure that the lamps are burning brightly, that all of our reflectors are clear, so that those who are in danger may be saved. I think we can very, very easily see the connection with what we're talking about here with Paul, that we are safe and secure. We are saved by grace. We have that fellowship with the Lord. But there are many around us who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are here to point the way for them. Paul sacrificed much for the Philippian church. And he wants us to sacrifice much ourselves in our attitudes and in our actions coming in line. That no matter how crooked and twisted this world becomes, the darker the world gets, the more our light can shine even more brightly in contrast to this wicked world around us. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we lament at times at how dimly we shine. And yet, Lord, you call us to shine brightly in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We ask that you'd help us to do that. We live in a perverse world, in a in a crooked world, in a dark, dark world. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to shine brightly, to lead others out of that darkness and into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do this for your glory's sake only. In Christ's name, amen.